Welcome to Armchair Strategist, ORF's podcast series on all things national security. I'm Dutta Kapasi. And I'm Angad Singh. Every week, we're joined by a guest or two to discuss what's happening at our borders, in our region, and with our military. This week, we're wrapping up our first season with a look back at the events of the year and a bit of crystal gazing at some of tomorrow's challenges. To chat major developments, the ongoing India-China standoff at the border, U.S. elections, regional relationships, and all during the time of COVID, we've got with us Dr. Rajeshwari Pillai Rajagopalan, Distinguished Fellow and our colleague at ORF, who is really the perfect person to be closing out our first season with. Welcome, Raji. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And I've been uh, listening to this very interesting conversation and uh, glad to be part of this. Thank you. Thanks for coming, Raji. Um, I think I'll kick it off with... Uh, obviously, the border issue. Okay. We've had uh, round after round of uh, fruitless talks between the, the Indian and Chinese armies. Yeah. Um, this has obviously been a, a breakdown of conventional deterrence, uh, the fact that we are at this pass. And, uh, you know, the question now, as, as winter has, it's no longer a future tense, winter has set in. Yeah. Uh, what are the hopes of returning to a status quo ante? Or is this the new normal? Is you know is the worst case that that the LAC is now like the LOC, or or is there some 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 different middle ground that that is to be the new normal moving forward? Um, thank you. That's a terrific question to start with because I think when you look at twenty uh, twenty, um, and one of the biggest thing has been in terms of what where what things what. What went wrong, really? Uh, and when you look at it, I think the biggest uh, challenge has been in terms of the developments on the line of actual control between India and China. Uh, the fact that uh, the certain amount of stability and predictability that prevailed earlier on the Sino-Indian border can never be cannot be taken for granted anymore. Things are turning, um, whether you want to call it a new normal, and I think that's becoming the case. You cannot take things for granted, and I think the fact that you know, the political leadership on both sides took pride in the fact that we are uh, two political, uh, we are two countries uh, with mature leadership who can take care of the things, uh, you know, without getting things out of control. But I think uh, what happened in Galvin really showed that that's not really the case. Uh, But I think, uh, can we go back to a sort of, can we go back to status quo ante? I, again, again, it's not very clear, uh, but winter is here, like you said, it's already here. It's not in future tense and we are going to be stay put uh, we are going to be stay, uh, stay put there for at the, for the entire duration. Uh, whether the Chinese forces, whether they will stay on there or not, it's not very clear. But we cannot afford to take our eyes off in a sense. And so we are going to be there. Uh, we have done our best in terms of equipping the four forces with the uh, with the winter clothing, with ammunition and all of that stuff. But I think it's a, it's a pretty... Uh, a, pretty unstable situation even during the winters i would say um, on top of the harsh weather conditions i think they you cannot take things for granted vis-a-vis china which are vis-a-vis the pla forces so i think it is going to be a long harsh winter in more in many more terms than just the um, you know weather conditions in a sense and you know the corollary really to the border question is 
automatically the broader India-China relationship. Yeah. Clearly, you know, the, the tangent seems to be, the narrative seems to be business as usual no longer. But the question then becomes to what extent, right? So, I mean, of course, um, it, the fact that there has been this violation of bilateral pacts, as the external affairs minister put it, yeah. that, that it has very significantly damaged the India-China relationship. Public sentiment definitely is on, you know, taking a stronger uh, um, stance against vis-a-vis -vis China. Hmm. Um, but there are questions of the effectiveness of India's economic reply to China. And then, of course, the strategic aspect to it. What are what does the ongoing border standoff imply for the political leadership going forward, both bilaterally, but also in multilateral forums? I mean, we've seen just the BRICS and the SCO summits happen. Um, there is, of course, G20 engagement, which is critical going forward, especially in the times of Corona uh, and a post-COVID uh, world. Hmm. So there's the political relationship, consequences for the commercial engagement. What impact really do you foresee in the way that India and China now engage with one another? Absolutely. So uh, this time following the uh, sort of a Galvan crisis, I think there's a significant shift in the Indian attitude. And it's very mm. difficult to imagine that it will be business as, as usual after the current uh, Galvan crisis, in a sense. And I think uh, it was Ashra Tellis who said, Sino-Indian relations can never go back to the old normal. They will reset with greater competitiveness and so on and so forth. And I think that is absolutely uh, uh, true in a sense, because I think Galvan clash essentially means that India cannot afford to continue its ambivalent and uncommitted foreign policy approach, um, which was there, which was the case for the longest time, the hedging strategy, hedging policy, which was on the Indian side. Um, essentially, India was trying to straddle between multiple camps and so on and so forth. So that is, I think that has to stop because India has seen what the China challenge really means. I think this is something that I feel India got it right after the initial some setbacks uh, because Galvin, we really did not expect this to happen, uh, unravel the way it did. And in a sense, it has broke, broken several records that uh, in the summer, for instance, one, for instance, you have had ca casualty after several decades. Yeah. Second, shots being fired again, breaking several decades of records. So in a sense, things have been you know, breaking apart, falling apart when it comes to the Sino-Indian border relations, uh, uh, political relations, as well as the border, um, the kind of stalemate that prevailed in a sense. So, and of course, the, you have had diplomatic discussions, you have had military consultations, and none of these have proven to be any easier or that we are anywhere closer to any sort of a solution uh, at this point of time. So there is going to be, it is going to have a serious impact, both on the bilateral relations and at least on how India is going to rebuild its relations with other countries. I think there is a China factor is going to be a serious factor. And I think in some ways you can say that the Galvin clash has been a game changer for India. India's view, at least as far as China is concerned, there is a post and a pre and post Galvan moment in India's foreign policy and strategic engagement. Um, I think uh, the public sentiment that you refer to, public sentiment has never been particularly positive about China. Um, you know, you have always seen a very pro-U.S. attitude among the larger public when you look at any of the Pew surveys or other surveys. But uh, this time around, the significant shift that I see is in terms of the elite perception. And elite perception, uh, if you whether you were to look at the former foreign secretary, the recently retired foreign secretary uh, Vijay Gokhale's writings uh, post-retirement, he has written a number of columns uh, in the media, and all of them are taking a very harsh tone towards China. Uh, similarly, you have. Uh, 
former foreign secretary, former NSA, Ambassador Shivshankar Menon, or you take the case of Ambassador Gautam Bambawale. And these are folks who have held uh, a very balanced view or, you know, they felt that India and China can do a lot together. Uh, there is a future for um, the China and India. This is nation century. So those kind of sentiments, um, you know, they have had somewhat uh, a clear-eyed view. And Vijay Gokhale is particularly surprising because he was the one who facilitated the Wuhan summit and so on and so forth. So he did see a lot of potential in the India-China relationship. But all of them today are writing about and talking about as to how uh, there is a need for a realistic appraisal of what China really represents and what kind of policy framework. They don't obviously... Uh, upfront, they don't say that their India policy, uh, China policy, has been a failure. But the fact is that they do acknowledge that there is a need for a change in the in, in India's China policy. That clearly, in a sense, to me, acknowledging that there has been that so far the India policy on China has been wrong, and there is a need for a fresh appraisal. And uh, Ambassador Gautam Bambawale has even gone several steps further to say that we need to militarize the Quad and uh, similar such groupings. That there is a need for uh, India to forge closer, closer strategic tie-ups with other like-minded partners, militarize the Quad and so on and so forth, undertake uh, joint uh, uh, partnerships, joint uh, military operations and so on and so forth. So I think there is a clearly a call for a fresh appraisal, a realistic appraisal on what really um, uh, the kind of policy framework that we need to develop vis-a-vis China and uh, I think many of the uh, many of the steps that uh, in that India has taken, the Modi government has taken so far, are almost completely within the economic domain. Whether it is in terms of sanctioning um, uh, um, sort of uh, some certain companies, denying them permission to um, stay, whether in, in the infrastructure business and so on and so forth, and of, of course uh, banning hundreds of uh, um, Chinese apps again. This may seem as fairly, uh, you know, not very consequential, but the fact is that I think it is having a larger impact, uh, which India itself may not have really thought through. Um, uh, now, several more countries, uh, countries like in the US, for instance, is looking at ba- have banned uh, uh, t- t- apps and so on, Chinese apps, for instance. And I think uh, I think the most critical aspect is for me is the Huawei's prospects in India's. Uh, 5G um, uh, telecommunication um, network in a sense. Um, Huawei did stand at least some chance of gaining some, you know, a fair playing field, a level playing field for it. But at the same time, uh, the manner in which China has gone about behaving during the summer has put really strong doubts on India to pursue um, the uh, with the Huawei in a, in a sense. So I think China has been in that sense very short-sighted in its approach, short-sighted in its policy framework. Um, and I think uh, this, is, uh, this is on China. And in a sense, it has actually now pushed India to take steps, whether it is in the economic domain or in the strategic and diplomatic domain, things that were somewhat uh, India was uncomfortable with. But I think India has been forced to now play the balance of power games, uh, take on steps that are fairly antagonistic towards, harsh towards China. I think this is, uh, China had it all in the in a sense, India uh, India has been pushed along that line too um, in, this, in this regard. I like what you said earlier, uh, Raji, about India's ambivalent, uncommitted uh, foreign policy and how China's gone some way towards um, towards solidifying and hardening some of India's foreign policy um, directions. Yeah. But here's where it gets uh, a little more complicated, a little more interesting. Uh, you know, the Russian foreign minister, uh, Sergei Lavrov, recently made some, uh, frankly, tone-deaf remarks, implying that India doesn't know what it's doing in its own neighborhood. 
and that it's being manipulated by the West when it comes to constructs like uh, the Indo-Pacific and the Quad and so on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Indian MEA predictably did that, their usual soft pushback, defending its uh, regional positions, but also reaffirming ties with Moscow and, you know, trying to play both sides. So the, the Moscow relationship is where that ambivalence still exists. Yeah. You know, and, and now as we, as we close out 2020 and we look forward where China is, has finally been acknowledged as the principal regional problem, the, the fundamental question then becomes, if Moscow is not on board with India's China problem, what then is the future of the India-Russia relationship? Um, that's again a very uh, ex- an excellent question because I think the Russia factor continues to be a problem uh, in the Indian foreign policy increasingly because Russia was not traditionally, but I think Russia has changed significantly um, even from the Russia that we handled in the, in the beginning of the 90s in the post-Cold War framework when uh, President Putin was in office at that time. Uh, but I think it's a very different Russia that you're dealing with and you need to grapple with that new reality comes to grips with that new reality because otherwise you are going to be floundering in your Russia policy but also in your in your in your ability to forge other closer partnerships whether it is with the US whether it is with the Japan or Australia or even some of the European countries who have big concerns about Russia in a sense uh, I but I this is where I, I get some, I think Russia would want to believe that you know um, in India, they can handle or they can kind of mediate in the India-China affairs. And I think ever since the Galvan crisis happened, uh, they have tried to do this, try to mediate in some ways. Uh, mediate, uh, we will not like the term, but the fact is that they try to kind of uh, pose as a middleman to kind of see if the if India and China can come together, resolve some of this problem, current problems and so on and so forth. Uh, they have had two summits where we have the uh, the Indian uh, foreign minister, Indian defense ministers traveling to Moscow and the uh, face-to-face meetings with uh, Ch- with Chinese uh, officials as well, counterparts. But the fact is that China, uh, Russia does not have much of a leeway in pushing China around because today Russia is the junior partner in, in if you were to look at the Russia-China equation. And uh, Russia wants China more than ever in the past. And I think that's a, that's a reality that Russia has to acknowledge. And Russia does not really have much of a voice in pushing its line of uh, thinking and the fact that China can Russia can believe continue to believe that uh, we are getting manure uh, sort of a manipulated and we are getting pushed around to accept uh, acknowledge the Indo-Pacific or the Quad and kind of thing by Western countries or by Japan and so on and so forth but the reality is that we are making our own strategic choices based on the China threat and it is the China problem and I, I don't think China Russia will ever come to accept this because today the Russia Russia is feeling isolated Russia Russia feels um, that they don't have any uh, genuine partners, genuine uh, countries to partner with, whether it's uh, in terms of the defense industry or in terms of energy collaboration and so on and so forth. So they want China. And more than anything else, they believe that in at a time when they feel so isolated after the Western sanctions and so on and so forth, that they need a strong voice on their side. And that strong voice comes from China and not from India. So they don't care about the Indian sensitivities and kind of things. And they are going to push the uh, push the China line for sure. And of course, we saw this in the last uh, Raisina dialogue as well, when uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, made this talk about the how critical he was about the uh, Quad and Indo-Pacific and so on and so forth. Um, and so you cannot expect Russia to uh, accept it or acknowledge the uh, reality of the Quad or the reality of the Indo-Pacific concept uh, because they need China more than ever. So this is going to be a part of the problem. Uh, but at the same time, to me, uh, for, as an Indian looking at 
Russia from a national security perspective, I have certain concerns because the kind of deals that Russia has entered into with vis-a-vis -vis China uh, in the post-Ukraine uh, time frame, those are not particularly uh, kind of, they don't give me much of a confidence. Uh, for instance, for the longest time, China's uh, criticism of Russia was that, that they don't uh, supply the best uh, uh, technology or best platforms to China, and that there was no technology transfer when it came to the U uh, when it came to China, and that the that the Russians parted with their best technology to India. So this was the longest time their criticism about Russia. Today, that is no more the case. Russians, after the Ukraine crisis, I think when in 2014, when Putin went to Beijing, he signed a deal to supply them with the Su-35. He supplied deals to supply them with the advanced kilo-class submarines. All of these, when I look at it, they, they are not giving me much confidence about Russia as a legitimate partner. And the fact that we deploy... We have bought this U-30 MKI and we deploy on the Sino-Indian border. But now the Russians have actually given the Chinese Su-30 as well as Su-35, which is a far more advanced platform, as well as the kilo-class submarines, S-400s and so on and so forth. So these do have serious national security implications for me as an Indian. So I need to be more clear-eyed about, clear about what Russia means in terms of... Russians have their own compulsions. There is, I, I, I can sympathize, I can empathize with the Russian position, but we need to understand from our national security perspective and not necessarily get stuck at why Russia is doing what, what it is doing. Now coming to this question of the other big um, development this year, of course, the U.S. elections. We're moving from Trump to Biden. Hmm. Clearly, the first big question, what does this mean for U.S.-China? We've seen um, Biden's use of term Asia-Pacific mm. instead of now the more accepted Indo-Pacific. We've yeah. seen the nomination of retired General Lloyd Austin as defense secretary, who yeah. uh, has been uh, cited on the lack of experience in uh, Indo-PACOM. The question on everyone's tongue really is, as a Democrat takes presidential office, are we looking at a great reset between U.S. and China? Yeah, this has always been a sort of a question. Whenever the Democrats come into office, it's always uh, puts countries like India, Japan, also to some extent uh, in a bit of a jittery as to how the U.S.-China equations are going to develop and what does it really mean. So when you when it comes to the Biden administration, um, I don't the focus on China is unlikely to go away. Though Biden and the Democrats are not against the Quad or the Indo-Pacific, uh, free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, but I think you can certainly expect a change uh, in the political dispensation in Washington, D.C., could introduce at least some short-term policy turbulence. Uh, first and foremost, it will take a few months for a new administration to settle down in office before yeah. start uh, starting to address some of the political and strategic issues in the Indo-Pacific region. These are not going to be his first priority. Uh, but I think, to um, uh, uh, lucky for us, China's aggressive behavior continues to remind every single country and every single day of us of the serious threat that China poses. So I think there will be uh, a Biden administration will differ, will possibly differ from the Trump administration in terms of style and uh, rhetoric than actual policy. But I think um, there is, you know, there is going to be some bit of that rhetoric change in the rhetoric can also have some impact. Um, uh, there is little doubt that the U.S. will continue to anchor the growing coalition in the Indo-Pacific to respond to China's aggression. But the difference in the style that is going to be distinct from the Trump administration, where there will be a big emphasis on carrying the allies and partners along, mm -hmm. uh, rather than the U.S. doing things on its own, which was the Trump style. So I think the whole talk about multilateralism 
is a good thing to reassuring the partners and some friends and so on and so forth but i think it could ha- also have a uh, certain negative effect i'll tell you why the negative effect that i'm talking about for instance when obama administration came into office when obama came into office they talked about obama talked about multilateralism as the cornerstone of how the us would approach its you know friends allies partnerships and so on and so forth but my and this came in the backdrop of the uh, president george bush uh, bush administration which they believed that it went a bit too far in terms of the unilateral policies and so on and so forth so there was this big emphasis on multilateralism uh, i would have really liked okay if obama had carried on with the rhetoric of multilateralism but believed in not exactly ceding away the strategic space to china so the name of uh, uh, the the whole rhetoric of multilateralism the way it played out during the obama administration the way i see it is that uh it actually ceded away some important strategic space to china at least in the first couple of years and that it has been very difficult to regain that strategic space i think a lot of uh, wrong things happened during the first uh, couple of years of the obama administration i hope obama uh, but the biden administration does not make that mistake of believing in too much of multilateralism and giving away space to other countries who may not really want to kind of take on uh, that strategic space but at the same time if you leave it to china to kind of play along on the multilateral route and so on and so forth i think that is again ceding away that space and i think that could also affect the credibility of the us as a security guarantor in the region and i think that has always been that has been in the making for a while now since the obama administration and i think many of us at that point of time asked whether this was you know the restricted to a obama phenomena or is it a larger trend that you are seeing in us politics and i think that's why even as the for instance japan and australia they continue to be under the us security umbrella and so on and so forth they are also building their own strategic partnerships in the region uh, because they don't want to just rely on the us as a security guarantor because uh, what if there is going to be an equation tomorrow between us and china or what if there is some sort of a you know too much of multilateralism giving way to um, uh, china taking taking a larger space in the multilateral framework it has already been trying to do this in the last few last couple of years where it tries to champion as a voice of globalization and so on and so forth so, so there are serious concerns uh, even as the us administration uh, the biden administration comes into office that the talk about multilateralism the talk about where there is talk about you know taking the allies and partners along but at the same time it could also seed uh, away some of the strategic space to china in the process you know it's it's really interesting because again i think the the point that uh, um what i'm what i'm understanding from what you're saying is you know there's this lack now of certainty of the role that the us can play you know and this then brings me back to um the key question for us here which is the india us relationship now you mentioned that uh you know this is the now the sort of consensus that's building we can't go back it's a new normal we have to learn we have to relearn how to really engage with china how much the question then that i have to ask is this change in india's china policy to what extent is it contingent on a growing defense and security relationship with the us and given you know the potential changes that we may see even if it takes some time as biden you know is first and foremost preoccupied with domestic issues but how do we see that playing out and what impact is the way that the us engages with china going to have an impact on the india us relationship and also then the space that india itself has to maneuver vis-a-vis china 
Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that's again a terrific question looking at the, you know, different uh, push, uh, pulls and pressures that will work on uh, India in a sense. How does this all kind of square? Does it really square at the end of the day when you're looking at uh, uh, three important pillars that might actually, you know, move around, uh, shift around in a, in, a, in a big way? So I think uh, a lot can depend on how U.S.-China uh, equations uh, evolve in the coming, uh, coming, uh, coming months and years. And I think that's going to be one big problem. But I think even when you look at a general democratic administration, which has generally had a, a, a strategic uh, a partnership approach towards China, but I think a lot has changed uh, in China over the last four years. Uh, there today appears to be a bipartisan approach, consensus on China, that there is a growing sense that there is a need to address China as a threat and the time to confront China is now. So that it seems uh, to be you know, fairly uh, clear in a sense, whether it is a democratic administration or a republican, it was going to be the case. But today that uh, ever since the, um, uh, the Trump administration came into office there, and I think it's also going to be uh, putting the Biden administration on a spot to go back to uh, or reverse some of the policy uh, trends that we have seen during the Trump administration, uh, because that uh, reversing any policy of the Trump administration will see will be seen as giving a, you are giving away to China essentially. You are you are actually compromising your own national security and con uh, China related concerns, whether it is on national security or even trade related issues. So I think uh, everybody agrees today that China is a problem but how to address and I think that's going to be some bit of uh, the problem that you might see the kind of approach that you want to have um, because some would believe that you need to work with China to address some of the global issues like climate change for instance uh, but I think uh, uh, but I think uh, there is a larger uh, recognition and acknowledgement among even many of the Democrats that you need to address China upfront and the time to confront China is right now. So I think you are going to see a large amount of policy uh, continuity. Uh, the style, like I said, the style and um, uh, the the style and the processes might differ, but I think there is a larger acknowledgement that you need to uh, confront China upfront. So that that's number one. And second, I think the approach, uh, the way it will go along is to also build as a group of like-minded countries. So whether it is uh, India, Japan, Australia, um, US, of course, you have the Quad in that sense. You also have a Quad plus like format, which is uh, obviously in the for, in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. But we don't know how that might in the post-COVID scenario, whether that kind of a grouping will emerge into something bigger, because if you... If you remember, the, uh, the, that's actually um, uh, sort of. If you remember how the quad itself came into play in in uh, in uh, a decade ago, it came in the context essentially originally came about as a response to the tsunami crisis. So you mm -hmm. had a natural disaster which originally gave shape to the Quad countries to come together, work around their militaries to work around and so on and so forth. And I think today you have a COVID-19, another, you know, non-traditional security which is providing the basis for the three, four, for the four plus three countries, um, including South Korea, Vietnam and New Zealand to come together in that sense. So I think it could it could provide as the basis for uh, countries to work around in that sense. But I think uh, it's too early to say for with certainty, but I think there is every sense, uh, there is likelihood that this will emerge into something bigger in the coming days. And I think there is also the possibility that because all of these countries also share a common security concern that emanate from China. Um, so every one of these countries, South Korea, uh, Vietnam, and New Zealand, they have been also at the receiving end of all this pressure gay, pressure placed by China. And uh, each one of them is concerned about China's military and political expansion uh, into areas that are proximate to them. Um, so this 
this could be uh, a sort of a you know an a effective baseline for um, expanding collaboration from moving away from covid to something more broader strategic and security competition uh, a second motivation is of course the every one of these countries is also far weaker than china so that involves again uh, there is a necessity for these countries to come together uh, identify possible partners allies that can work together um, sort of uh, uh, so in a sense in combination when i look at it there is uh, there, they suggest that there is a pragmatic path to greater security cooperation and the quad plus like groupings can come together um, so in the future when you look at it whether uh, sort of uh, under the biden administration whether the us will remain an engaged and involved party in the indo pacific or not i think there is also a recognition that the major asian uh, indo pacific powers do feel that they need to kind of uh, Uh, come together form their own strategic partnerships so whether it is india's uh, own approach with countries like south korea which has become much more strategic over the years uh, or with vietnam which has been strengthening uh, especially the security aspects have been strengthening over the years uh, india is also kind of stepping up collaboration with um, singapore thailand and other countries so uh, so i think there is a very possibility there is likelihood that these countries are going to emerge as big players because um, they see a common security concern that that come from china in a sense on the question whether biden's uh, sort of initial reference uh, that he didn't talk about the indo pacific he referred to it as asia pacific whether that means something uh, i am not entirely certain that is really the case i don't think we should read very much into it at this point of time uh, maybe because uh, i think uh, it's too early to kind of you know these are very symbolic kind of things i don't know whether we should make too much of uh, that kind of uh, asia pacific reference uh, I, i did see yeah a couple of his his articles in the atlantic i think raised a lot of questions about that uh, the fact that it did not mention indo pacific it did not uh, um, talk about china and so on and so forth but i think again like i said there is going to be a difference in the style and rhetoric so i think we need to see um uh, we can't say with certainty how the um the us dynamic who us relationship in the in the indo pacific is going to going to be like um i think it's uh, completely crystal gazing at this point of time to uh, <laughs> to sort of talk about uh, what the us policy in the indo pacific might look like in a sense but the, like i said in the beginning the china problem is something that there is a bipartisan consensus by and large so there is a likelihood that that policy will continue but uh, some change in the style and processes would be there uh, just really quickly raji i'm going to ask you to indulge me on a bit of uh, crystal gazing okay um, when we talk uh, india us uh, defense ties narrowly hmm. you know we've we've uh, this year saw the the 2 plus 2 meeting uh, saw the um, uh, agreement on on beca on the basic yeah. uh, exchange agreement for uh, geospatial awareness right um what where do we go from here uh, because obviously interop uh, interoperability is a buzzword yeah. but we are far far away from being truly interoperable absolutely um and then obviously you know formal alliances are yeah. again it's it, it's seen as a dirty word in in at least in new delhi yeah. um where, where how do we derive more from this relationship is it just a failure of imagination on both sides uh that 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 we haven't done much more than uh these foundation agreements and things like that or or are these the bedrock on which we're going to see a much more uh, aggressive upward trajectory going forward i think it's uh, it's a lot of crystal uh, gazing that i'm going to do because so but the fact is that i think india us defense relations have 
achieved certain amount of you know we have traveled a long way but i think we still have a long uh, longer line of expectations in terms of what could have been done what is uh, uh, what is achievable in a sense in a realistic term and i think that's something that we have had issues whether it is in terms of our relations with um, uh, defense type with uh, procurement from russia also for instance the um, some of the aircraft carrier and so on so on the pricing issue and so on and so forth we have had uh, we do make uh, sort of we have expectation that there will be certain things delivered certain prices will be up so will be will be there but i think in terms of the india and the us i think there's a bigger mismatch of expectations we expect a lot more to happen a lot more to happen quickly and i think one point that uh, the indian side keeps talking about is the defense it's not defense trade and technology and uh, uh, transfer initiative but it is that transfer that for india the big emphasis on the transfer technology transfer that is more important for whereas for maybe from the us side it is the trade factor that is actually uh, the more critical one in a, from their from their perspective and i think so we expect a lot to happen over a very short period of time and i think uh, um, uh, but i think creating a larger sort of a network of uh defense industry type i think that's a way to kind of go about uh because i think uh, especially now that a democratic administration is coming to into office i am not certain how uh how quickly we can make progress i am somewhat skeptical of the kind of progress that we can make uh on the defense side of things uh in the immediate framework because there are also going to be a lot of wrinkles on the overall uh political relationship there will be uh, given that it is a biden administration in office there will be a lot of emphasis on human rights issues there will be uh, the kind of majoritarian uh, role that is being played the religious freedom several of those kind of issues that did not really matter when trump administration was in office those are going to at least get uh, become irritants in the relationship which will also have a fallout in the in the kind of tie ups we are make about to make uh, about, we are about to realize um, we can possibly realize in the defense trade and uh, uh, technology initiative so i think there are going to be some uh, minor hiccups irritants that we may um, sort of uh, need to address on along the way uh, i don't think it is going to be absolutely smooth sailing when it comes to defense trade and of course the uh, four now that the four foundational agreements have been signed it should enable a closer partnership but i think there are still limits to it uh, because i think the of because of mismatched expectations in a sense if we now narrow back to um our backyard basically um one of the other things that we have seen this year has been a flurry of engagement with our immediate and extended neighborhood yeah. there has been a sense of a dedicated reaching out whether it's through um whether it's for a covid response mm-hmm. or um more specifically for our conversation in terms of defense and security engagement mm-hmm. um we've seen the india sri lanka maldives maritime security dialogue happen after a gap we've seen our external affairs minister in uh middle east in bahrain uae and seychelles we have seen um the uh the sale of the kilo class submarine to myanmar there are plans moving forward uh to put into place a coastal surveillance radar system in our neighborhood these are just a few of the many many examples of uh, little steps that seem to be that seem to be uh, pushing forward or that seem to be that India is engaging in with its uh with its immediate and extended neighborhood. My question then becomes are we finally going to see India deliver on the neighborhood front? Yeah, the, I think uh 
India has done a great deal because I think there is always the constraints on the Indian part, whether it is in terms of the capacity, uh, both in terms of uh, our ability to deliver on infrastructure projects or financial uh, constraints that uh, keep coming up in a sense. So given the capacity constraints on the part of India and how much we have done in the in our immediate neighborhood, I think it's uh, fairly uh, impressive in a sense. And I think there is also the fact that I think many of the our neighborhood also recognize that they oversold uh, or they put in too much confidence in their relationship vis-a-vis China. Uh, and I think Nepal is a good uh, good example or even Bhutan. These are countries, Nepal for, for sure, because just a few months ago, you had the instance where uh, the map controversy and so on and so forth with India. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, and uh, how now things are, you know, sort of a taking a reverse um, kind of a, um, a, a reversal of the policy you are seeing vis-a-vis China, vis-a-vis, uh, vis-a-vis India and Nepal. I think that's a, that's a good case in point in a sense. Uh, how some of these uh, regional immediate neighbors have sold their relationship with China so much and they had so much of confidence that things were going to be great with, uh, with China and then uh, within a few months itself that they realized that that's not really the case and therefore they are kind of doing sort of what they need to do, rebuild the relationship with China and kind of so on and so forth. So it's it, we have delivered on some of these things. And you talked about the India-Sri Lanka-Maldives NSA-level talks. And I think that's a fairly important one, given that um, uh, these are immediate, uh, the Indian Ocean, uh, two critical neighbors in the Indian Ocean region. So absolutely uh, important that. And the fact that this was this meeting was happening, uh, was hap- happening after a gap of six years, that itself is like fairly significant. So in a sense, we are managing to bring the importance of the this particular dialogue uh, to be recognized by both Sri Lanka and Maldives. Maldives does really understand, but I think even the fact that uh, given that you have uh, the two Rajapaksas uh, at the political helm of affairs, politically speaking, uh, in Sri Lanka who are somewhat uh, softer on China, but they, they also recognize the importance of restarting the NSA-level talks, maritime security dialogue, uh, it's an important thing. And to, uh, to this, at this meeting, I think you also had uh, Seychelles and Mauritius as guests uh, in a virtual uh, meeting. So again, um, you are able to develop a larger a larger grouping of countries in the in the immediate region, in the Indian Ocean region, which has become a very, very critical one uh, for a number of different reasons. One, of course, the increasing Chinese uh, presence in the Indian Ocean region has been um, has been getting fairly uh, serious in, in India's overall strategic concerns. Um, and I think the fact that uh, you have been having repeated uh, um, Chinese research vessels in the Indian Ocean region coming also, some of the vessels coming also into the Indian exclusive economic zone and the Indian Navy has had to uh, chase them away each time. So I think uh, these are growing sets of concerns and therefore you are beginning to recognize. I think in the initial cases, I think for a very long time, for several decades, we got the China policy completely wrong. But I think finally there is a recognition that we need to address China again fair and square uh, uh, and upfront and i think that is what is leading india to finally acknowledge the need to uh, develop closer uh, partnerships do um, reach out to the um, immediate neighborhood to do um, you know give them what they need not what we can give but at the same time what are their kind of requirements um, tailor um, uh, tailor the requirements uh, tailor our delivery process to their requirement and so on and so forth so i think there is a change that is taking place again thanks to china i think india has come to finally some recognition that we need to take a uh, take care of our neighborhood first 
and without that we can't go very far uh, and the indian ocean is part of that neighborhood so there has been a greater sense of um, uh, sort of conversation and outreach to um, uh, sort of uh, uh, to the indian ocean region as well so it's it's something that is great that's happening but i think there is still a lot of capacity issues on the part of india if you, because i think most countries would compare india with what china is doing and I, whether it is nepal whether it is bhutan things are slightly changing uh, in our favor whether it, in all of these countries but at the same time we still don't have deep pockets and i think that will continue to be a factor similarly our ability to complete projects on time regional connectivity infrastructure projects um, and i can give you the best example the india uh, shrill um, sort of in, the trilateral project with thailand and myanmar i think this has been going on forever and we have had so many uh, num- uh, delays by several several years now and each of our neighbors are going to compare and contrast how we do well um, in this uh, china and china has been you know china has that extra capacity china has that extra capacity as well as in terms of financial one and they have been able to dole out uh, to a lot of our neighbor a lot of our neighborhood so in a sense we are always going to be compared uh, and contrasted with china's ability to deliver in terms of infrastructure and connectivity projects as well as uh, financially uh, what we can do so there are some constraint uh, constraints uh, issue uh, gaps in our ability to deliver but i think we with the limited amount that we have with a limited amount of capacity i think we have done uh, reasonably well but i think that comes again from the fact that china has pushed india to do uh, finally because i think for almost like 70 years uh, we did not see china as a serious problem we had a doklam even if we were to look at even the recent past we had a doklam but we thought that we can still rebuild that relationship therefore we had as a wuhan summit and mm-hmm. we had two informal summits and i don't think it has delivered anywhere to uh, our satisfaction not only did not deliver but things have you know gone completely wrong on the china front and uh, we had in some initial difficulties but i think we have managed to pull out of that but i think uh, uh, china is pushing us to do a lot of things that are going to be difficult painful in economic terms especially um but i think we have to make a conscious decision to rebuild our neighborhood but also um sort of a rebuild our ties with uh, like minded partners thanks rajesh so as we as we close out this conversation um i wanted to get your view on the year gone by um as a whole what in your opinion was the one big disaster um and what then was the one thing india handled really well i think uh, one big disaster if you were to ask me that was the china front um, uh, because i look at things from a security and strategic perspective mostly so to me i think the china front was the biggest disaster the galvan happened uh, and that we were not uh, initially prepared for this again as a result of the covid which itself can be traced back to which china was responsible for uh but i think after the initial uh, some mistakes we managed to pull ourselves uh military army has been uh, uh, military in, in general both the indian army and the air force they have been able to um address the china problem in a mu- much more efficient fashion but i think there is a china problem is not going to go away and, uh, uh, and the problem is going to continue in the longer term as well uh this is finally we have come to uh, uh you know former sense that there is china is not going to be your friend china is not going to be a partner 
But I think even as I say that, I think there is a sense within the establishment to establish, uh, to have some sense of normalcy in the bilateral relations, to establish some sense of normalcy. I'm not saying that we will go back to a, the uh, pre-Galvin kind of a scenario or the that Wuhan sentiment is not going to be there. But I think some effort is on with the establishment to, uh, to have a semi- a working decent working relationship because you believe that it's an immediate neighbor that we want some semblance of peace but i think peace and stability on the lac cannot be taken for granted and i think they uh, in one of the earlier questions also you know, we talked about the number of pacts agreements that have been in place between india and china and why they have failed and i think this has been part of the in, uh, indian uh, strategic community discourse in a sense as to why we have had so many uh, agreements in place starting with the 1993 and 1996 then you have had the 2005 um, and then most recently you had the uh, bdca the border defense cooperation agreement in 2013 then why did we fail and why did galvan happen Galvan happened because of the huge power differential between India and China. China believes that it can bully around neighbors. It can, you know, it can take on anybody. And especially India was an easy, uh, easy prey for it because uh, we are not tied up in a, in a uh, the security guarantees with other countries. We don't have a security umbrella with the US or Russia or anybody else for that matter. So if China wanted to teach India a lesson, or if anybody in the neighborhood a lesson, I think it, it was India that was going to be the case because Japan, Taiwan, this uh, the US angle would come into play and so on and so forth. So I think from a Chinese perspective, when I look at it, it was India that they, they wanted to send a very clear message to. But as somebody, uh, one of the Chinese scholars who tried to rational, find a rational as to why Galvan happened, and she said the Chinese leadership is extremely paranoid. If paranoia is what is driving China to do what it is doing uh, and it's doing uh, not just about around India, with India, but all around in its neighborhood, whether it is South China Sea, East China Sea or with Taiwan and so on and so forth, then there is very little that India or US or Australia or Japan or anybody can do in that for that matter. Because uh, if it is so paranoia that if, literally, you know, worried about everybody, just about anybody in the world who is going to target China and so on and so forth, then there is nothing much that you and I can do to assuage China or to kind of, you know, uh, to because India remained sensitive to China's concerns for the longest time. And uh, we did not build our relations with countries that would have otherwise, um, you know, who are like-minded partners, whether it is the U.S. In, uh, U.S. India relations or India, Japan, India, Australia, and so on and so forth. We were so even Malabar exercise, for instance, even in the middle of the Galvan crisis, we were still, you know, we were not hundred uh, percent sure whether we would let uh, Australia into the Malabar exercise or not. Finally, we took the call. Because I think China was still not kind of... So even in the middle of the crisis, a Galvan crisis, we were still, you know, waiting to see how China would respond and so on and so forth. And seeing that it has not responded positively to any of India's um, being nice about it. Uh, finally, I think we, we have decided to kind of invite Australia, do things that are purely in our national interest. So in a sense, China was the biggest, um, in a sense, we did not really see that coming, uh, see that. Uh, biggest disaster sort of so to say uh, but the fact is that that is one big problem which we also handle reasonably well at this point of time given the kind of limitations that we have had uh, we are managing the whole folk but I think it's going to be like a, like in the beginning we said it's going to be a long harsh winter for our uh, for armed forces um, who are stuck on the um, sort of uh, um, on the border areas 
uh, but we we do do not have the luxury uh, to ignore or being away from the neighbor um, uh, from the border uh, border area. So I think it's going to be it's going to be unfortunate. But I, the unfortunate reality is that um, China is not somebody who you can work with in in peace and so on and so forth. So they can, no agreement is going to be really helpful in in developing a more stable uh, relationship because I've heard several. China experts uh, who have said now um, now we need more um, border uh, agreements or defense agreements between India and China uh, to avoid this kind of Galvan like crisis. It was not because you did not have these agreements that you had the Galvan crisis, or it's not because you did not under you, you did not understand China in some sense. But it's it's not the lack of you know that understanding. But one is like I said in the power differential. Second, yeah. Um, and if you look at the, uh, if you want to talk about the agreements between India and China to avoid crisis, to me, the biggest and the best agreements are the 1993 and 1996 uh, agreements. Those are the best two CBMs you have because they precisely deal with the border areas. They do also precisely talk about the different kind of CBMs. But the, there are deficiencies. The problem with those ag agreements are that some of the clauses have to do with the distance from the LAC. So suppose you say that uh, 500 meters from the LAC, we will not deploy, you know, we will not deploy certain type of weapon systems, which when you don't have clarity on where the line of actual control is, where the LAC is, uh, which, LA, which 500 meters from which LAC are you talking about? The Chinese have one perceived line of actual control. The India has another perceived line of actual control. So as long as you have that ambiguity, you don't have cl any clarity on where the line of actual control is, you are not going to be able to implement the best of agreements. So you can have more agreements uh, to avoid Galvan crisis, but that's not going to go away. Second, even when Doklam happened, we knew that that was not the end of it because we managed to disengage the forces at that point of time without any firing or without any casualty. But that was not the, going to be the end of it. I think a lot of us wrote about it as to the Doklam is just the beginning and there are going to be several more Doklams. So what to expect in the future? I think many more prepare for a lot many more adventures vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. And we need to build our partnership partnership with our like-minded countries based on our national security requirements, not because somebody else is going to be, uh, it's not going to be appeasing to somebody else in a sense. And Raji, exactly yeah. on this point, we've looked back to 2020. If we now look at 2021, top three, because there's a whole range, clearly, but top three national security priorities for India, 2021. I think to me, the first and foremost is uh, adjusting our uh, defense budget because our defense right. armed forces are significantly um, sort of a, their requirements have not been met. And you can't do with anything under 2% of the uh, GDP. That's not going to, the defense budgets have been, you know, for a national security, for a government, Modi government, for instance, a government that talked so much about national security, used the national security rhetoric, I would have expected that national security defense budgets the defense requirements are going to be priority for them but the reality is that over the last few years the defense budgets have been the lowest since the 1962 war so rebuilding the armed forces and their capabilities is a number one priority for me second i think we need to get more realistic about our national security goals and uh, building partnerships uh, uh, 
based on the national security requirements rather than going by historical um, historical experiences or uh, sort of a emotional uh, kind of a perspective coming into play while developing our uh, partnerships and I, I think um, yeah i'm not going to be popular uh, but i think uh, iran for instance it's not uh, uh, it's not a country that i can i you know it remains important in the in the larger regional connectivity infrastructure projects and so on and so forth and how we need to build chabar port and so on and so forth it gives us uh, reach to certain regions but the fact is that iran has iran has not been a country that we could uh, sort of uh, that we could um, you know build partnership on an equal footing and uh, from a national security perspective it doesn't it does not really figure as an important partner to me i think there are far too many gulf countries israel uh, that are far too important for india in that sense from a national security perspective so i think we need to build partnership based on our national security goals rather than uh, history uh, driving us in that direction so i think there is that's something that for us um, that we need to be more cognizant about third i think uh, for the foreseeable future, future um i see uh the us as an important uh the us is not going to go away anywhere um so mm-hmm. i need to rebuild that relationship because if you if you think about india expanding its global reach and so on and so forth i want partners who can get me into various global clubs and to me i think uh, some of the important partners who uh, who have been fighting your battles are the us australia france and so on and so forth so you need to re- uh, build those relationship in a on a firmer basis and uh, not get history, get stuck at history in a sense great this has been super illuminating a lot of work a lot of um uh, nuances and um developments to look forward to in terms of how india responds to china how the us china relationship goes forward the impact that then has on india um it's an exciting space to be sure thank you raji for having uh come on to armchair strategist to be with us to um share your views with us Thank you thanks so much Rutika and thank you Angad for having me here thanks for coming Raji really fun talking about this thank you so that was a great conversation a great closer i think for our first season if i were to ask you Angad the same question that i asked Raji what according to you is one of the main national security priorities for india in 2021 Yeah so it's it's easy to get bogged down in the nitty gritties of India China the LAC and the quad and external alignments and so on uh, but I think I'm going to piggyback a little on what uh, Raji herself said with uh, military modernization this year has been marked with a lot of unnecessary tinkering uh, trying to fix what isn't broken uh, but we've left the biggest issue untouched and that is manpower reform mm-hmm. budgets today and and into the future are going to be under immense pressure and unless we sort out the pay and pension issues no amount of uh, theater commands and air defense commands are going to mean anything it's an unpalatable truth but the modernization issue is 100% dependent on the manpower issue what about what about you what do you think of uh, 2021 and onward on my end my intervention my two cents would be that part of what new delhi has to figure out going forward is how to respond to coercive diplomacy. We're seeing a broadening number of instruments that are being used for such purposes, whether it's connectivity, trade, data, or debt. Raji mentioned entering into partnerships according to national security interests, a um, a realistic assessment of what India needs to do and at whichever costs that it must then 
do so. And I think part of the calculus for entering into engagements and partnerships and um, so-called coalition building, one of the puzzle pieces has to be responding to coercive diplomacy. All right. And that is it from uh, Armchair Strategist in 2020. We'll be back with a new season in the new year. From our armchairs to yours, we're Ritika Nandar. 